Okay, so I would like to welcome everyone to the Roundtables. My name is Brianna Reese, and I'm the student director of the Roundtables here at Philadelphia University. Today, our host is Professor Dana Perlman. She is the Associate Professor Program Director of Midwifery here at Philly U. And our panel today will discuss the actual costs of menstruation nationally and globally. And I'll turn it over to you. Sure, so I'm Dana Perlman, and um, how many of you have, have heard of a big Wow, that never happens, that's so exciting. <laughs> okay, so we're making progress. So, so I'm a midwife, that means I'm a primary care provider for women and families, and that the care that I provide is in the context of women's lives, and it's not about illness, but it's about health and healthy decision making, and health promotion and disease prevention, and we're there with women when they're pregnant and they give birth, but we're also there across a whole lifetime care from adolescence through the end of life. Okay. Um, in fact, one of our professors just wrote an article that was published in a national journal about midwifery and hospice care. So some interesting stuff going on there. Um, the midwifery program is an online program, and so I don't do lectures, so we'll definitely be talking. Um, we do lots of discussion and discussion boards, so that's I, I intend to do that. And in fact, there's a there's a type of teaching called menudic uh, teaching, which is based on the word for midwifery that is, is like the Socratic method where you ask questions and, and help people to pull out their own learning through asking questions. And so that's how I'd like to, to run this. So. Um, hi, I'm Mimi Rao. I am the assistant, assistant professor of chemistry and math. I'm Camille Fox, um, Senior Fashion Merchandising and Management Major. I'm Chloe Ganeo, First Year Law, law Major. Law Society, sorry. I'm Josh Snooker, I'm a Professor in the Communications Program. Um, my name is Maria Sofai, I'm a third year student, and I'm a Marketing Major with Millennium Lots. And Lane, I'm the Director of the Law Society Major. Morgan Smith, I'm a Freshman Environmental Sustainability Major. So um, I wanted to say why I chose to, to do this. So um, last year, I, I know we say Nini. Nini ran the um, ran a Let's Bloody Talk one, and it had a lot of people who were really interested, and it was focused on why is menstruation so taboo? Why don't we talk about it? What's this kind of all about? And really beginning to explore that. And people were so interested that we thought we would do that again. And so this is Let's Bloody Talk 2. And we wanted to really explore what the costs are, both like literal costs, like money, and also what are other costs in terms of social standing and perspective, and costs in terms of culture and education, um, both in this country and internationally. So that's kind of how I wanted to to frame this, I thought we, we'd go from the concrete to the more abstract. So what I've, what I've handed out is just a list that I was able to pull off on the yearly costs of just, just the products. This doesn't include like the ibuprofen for cramps. It doesn't include the clothing that may need to be replaced. It doesn't include the gasoline or the bus fare to pick up the stuff. It just is the stuff. So let's let's talk.
also brought some, some pictures because sometimes people haven't even heard about this stuff. Um, and I also thought we could talk about the, uh, the experience of the walking down the hallway with it in your sleeve <laughs> or putting <laughs> it in your bra. That's a really <laughs> Shock syndrome. 
So you have to make sure you, ch you choose the correct size, okay? Which is like, how do we even know how much we're bleeding to know what the correct size is? And they always give you the amounts and like, it's not worse. Like, yes, it never works. <laughs> how are you supposed to know that? Yeah. How are you supposed to know that? Right. So, so these are tampons. These are applicator-less tampons. So there's less waste with them. But then you have to use your finger. And then you have to make sure that there's soap in the bathroom before you use it. And then you have to figure out how to get out of the stall, back to the sink, when you're done. So can be tricky. Okay? Because you're not always at home. Because you're not always at home. Okay. Then these are applicator and applicatorless tampons, which come in both plastic and cardboard. And then there's a whole debate about whether or not they're flushable or compostable. Okay. Um, we're going to go to this last. And then, so here's another one. This is another tampon with an applicator. Then there are different types of period panties that you can get. The, these are called Thinks, and that's a brand name. And they have a built-in pad, so you can... Is that the one you have to wash? Yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing them on the train in, um, in New York when I went to school, yes. and we actually talked about it in my anatomy class. Yeah. Um, some of the girls said it was like really gross because you're like sitting in your blood all day, so you have like different opinions on it. Right, and it depends also, there are different brands. So some of them have that looking, and so it doesn't feel wet, yeah. and some of them don't, and then they kind of feel wet. So the people I know who have actually tried these have been like, oh yeah, this is amazing, and they love them. Um, and a lot of women find that they're more comfortable. There's a term that they use called free bleeding. So that if they don't have something that they're wearing inside their body, or if they don't have plastic up against them from a pad, that they're much more comfortable. Um, in fact, there was a marathon runner, and I think in the UK, who ran and decided that she was going to not be as comfortable running and not run her best if she wore a tampon. And so she decided to free bleed during the marathon run, and it was a pretty interesting bit of news coverage that happened with that. And then this is the, um, like the, the theme underwear. So this is Ant Flow, but they also have ones that say um, Red Room and um, Shark Week. Um, <laughs> 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 so they have one that's called Count Dracula, but the word isn't count. And so there's, there's all different things that you can get. So there's there. And then there's pads, disposable pads, again, in all different sizes. And they've just recently started making them in like teen happy um, pad coverings that are like some marketing. Yes, that <laughs> marketing. It's amazing. And you know what? My daughter gets really annoyed when she was doing this. So somebody <laughs> I know gets really annoyed if I use the really cool covered wrappers instead of the plain yellow ones. She finds that really offensive. Being her the color ones. And then this is called a menstrual cup. And they come in all different brands. And they are foldable. And you can wear them, but you can wear them up to 12 hours. And they're not made of latex. And so they're usable over and over and over again. And they last about 10 years. So if you're comfortable putting in a tampon, this will save you a lot of money. Just one of them last you 10 years? One. Yeah. Oh, one. So if you look, yeah, what? So, you so if you look at this and you look at the cost on the bottom, 
The other ones are in the ballpark of 45 to 50 on the high end to about 30 on the lower end to menstrual sponges, which is about 20, to a menstrual cup, which is three. Yeah, three dollars for 10 years, that sounds. No, three dollars per year, 30 dollars for 10 okay. years. That sounds like pretty speedy. Yeah, yeah. So the downside is that you have to feel comfortable using it, and you have to figure out some, there are different cups of one person, um, I know, found that it was only comfortable if she wore it inside out. So she had to turn it inside out. The little stick that sticks down that's like a handle so you can pull it out was really annoying to her. Um, other people I know have just trimmed the little stick on the bottom. Right. So those are, those are just some of the options. So what do you think about those? Is it like weird? Sensitive. I think that or would be, positive. Or positive. Or positive. Whatever, whatever yeah. they think. 
Yes, I'll go. Um, so I remember um, when I was in fourth grade, we had this meeting and we had to, I mean, I never read like the take-home notes and stuff from the teachers, but they gave all the girls take-home notes to get consent from our parents to watch this video. And we didn't know at the time it was about. So my mom told me, she was like, okay, you're gonna go to school tomorrow afternoon. You're gonna have to go to um, a video at the nurse's office with your grade, all the girls, and you're gonna discuss about your period. And at that time, my mom never even mentioned it to me. And I was like, okay. Like, I was the first grade, I was like, okay, sure. So I remember when we all were in our homeroom classrooms, and they kind of like took all of the girls out, but it was more so like secret, like as if this was not something that should be talked about. Like we had to go away in the auditorium, all girls only, a few teachers were able to come. And everyone else, like I remember like the boys being confused too. And we were like, we don't even know what we're doing. It was a quick, probably like half an hour presentation. We were traumatized. I remember leaving that room and I was like, what is gonna happen to me? I was like, I don't know what's gonna go on. And like they showed us like tampons and stuff, but like they never showed us how to use tampons. Mm -hmm. And that's complicated too when you're, you know, younger. And um, I remember them talking to us about pads and stuff, but it was just a quick 30-minute presentation, and it was never spoken about again. And even I went to a public school too, so like even with like sex education, how you brought up like that was never spoken about. And even like when it was spoken about around the boys and stuff, like we would get embarrassed, and it was just something that was always like very, very hushed, especially in my school. But. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting how it's so different from a bloody nose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I had the exact opposite experience when I was in fourth grade. Mm -hmm. They did they did all of the girls and all that, yeah. but they showed us this was a long time ago. They showed us a sanitary belt that you could wear and then clip the ends of the pad to it and hold the pad in place because they didn't have adhesive pads. But they never told us why we would need one. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, why would you do that? <laughs> And then as I grew older and I just 
kind of became used to it, you know, that kind of just stopped questioning why and all that. So, and you know, well, I don't know, it just became, it was that time of the month and it was not a lot to talk about. That was that. You dealt with it on your own. I know like with my friends, like there was never like really a very strong conversation. I remember before I moved, so I was in fifth grade maybe, like I was about to move, uh, you know, to a different country, so I would not see these people again. And I remember like sitting down and like, can like one of the girls kind of like shared, oh like I have my period, or and then that's when the conversation kind of opened. But then I moved away, so I don't really know. Um, race. So it was very different, and especially in that, I, w- I don't want to say that they're very like conservative or like, but with women, especially my parents being Albanian and Greece, it's very like, their like rules are set for what women are supposed to do. It's like that housewife mentality and keep your mouth shut and just do how things are. Gendered spheres. Very gen- yes. Gendered spheres. Yeah. I think that speak, I mean, to briefly speak like from the other side, and I think like that both like the segregation, like gender segregation and secrecy reinforces a lot of these issues, right? So this notion that it is secret implies that it is like sort of somehow shameful, that it's only something for women to deal with. So it's not I think like just like you're you talking about like why wouldn't your dad also be part of this con like you are also still dealing with your father? So it sort of offloads everything to women, and then it also sort of like tends to like get reinforced into the masculine spheres as well. It's like the the un- we can't talk about this; it's untouchable, even though like why? So and then I think that that sort of the institutionalization of it at a very young age. I mean, we're talking about fourth grade, sort of reinforces like some of the policing in the workplace. I mean, I, mean, I think like that those those types of segregation that are sort of like bound up both in this logic of like I would say secrecy and shame, like then sort of get reinforced over time. The sort of management always also then sort of gets offloaded onto the women basically to not make men feel uncomfortable by sort of having to ever acknowledge that this basic human bodily reality. And I think that that also I think is taken up in interesting ways in some of the branding that maybe we could talk about later, but also like the the branding and technology around this and ways to sort of commercialize those fears and sort of being able to talk about it without talking about it, I find very interesting. I've run into uh, men in the compound hygiene aisle before, and then they they were really, you look at them, they were completely confused. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, staring at this wall of products (laughs) that we know exactly which one we like or how we use it, we grab it, we we, we go, we don't even think about it. And I had people who literally tap on me on the shoulder and said, um, I need, like, they, they can't even know what it's called. I said, oh, you need tampons. And, and now it's so over there. And then they were like, which one do I get? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. You have to ask your wife before I'm walking. But it's just, just the, the whole idea that they don't even walk in through that aisle if they could avoid it, you know? Yeah. So. I feel it's like very, like even avoiding the word, like saying tampon, like just puts people on the edge and they yeah. freak out and they're like, oh God, like what is it, how, it just, it, it throws people off because it's not something that 
they deal with, and then it's just it's just so uncomfortable because they're not familiar with it. But I feel like if sex ed or even just education period is not the same, I the sex ed at the district that I went in would be uh, female students on their own and male students on their own. No, have everybody in the same room. So everybody knows what's happening because what if that boy is a single dad one day, or what if you know it's his gay dad and you know there's two male partners? Like, what do you do then? And you have a daughter if you don't know from an early age exactly how it goes. Or just a dad. I, I plead guilty to what you just said, and I never thought of unless advertisements the roundtable. That was really a good moment because I never thought of that. And if my, if my daughter was playing a sport and fell down mm -hmm. and she was bleeding, I'd be running and taking care of her. I'd be the one there first knocking people down to get to her. But somehow that is removed. And I, I never understood it from your point of view, and it's wonderful, saying like you depended on your dad, your dad was always there for you, was always there. Right. And somebody's not there for you. You know, for right. one, this very important thing, somebody is he's cut out of the whole equation thrown to the side, right. and I never thought of how the, the impact would be on the daughter, and that was really, thank you for that. I think that was really uh, an epiphany, thank you. Mm -hmm. Did anybody have an experience where their period was celebrated? Where it was marked as something cool? Um, when I was in elementary school, I felt like being a girl, just like the topic of being a girl was like a really provocative discussion, and so when it came to like being and like getting your period, it was like, oh my god, like did you get your period yet? Or like, when are you gonna get it? Oh my god, you haven't had it yet? Or like, and then like once it did happen, my friends and I would just kind of like high five each other. That's just like the kind of friends I had who were all very supportive of like even like the gory details. Yeah. We would even now like be very open in discussing like our periods and like other like, I don't know, I guess societally gross stuff that we do. And but we're very loud about it. Like we're not at all like hushed or like. Yeah, it's not. That's what we realize. We're like across the room from each other, and we're like, "Do you have a tampon?" Is the regular yes? Never mind. Yes, from elementary school, it's just been like the kind of people I've been surrounded by have made it like a very comfortable discussion. Yeah, I can relate to that too. Like when I was in middle school, like we would always talk about it. Like I'm just really open when it comes to stuff, like because it's normal. Like. Why is it so gross? Like, yeah. if I'm in camp bar and like my friend is sitting there, I'm like, you got a tampon? Like, I'm not gonna be. That's fine. That's so stupid. Like, why do I have to hide something that is like a part of my system? Like, it's normal. So, mm -hmm. I just, I just think everyone should talk about it. Yeah. So what? <laughs> There's a beautiful children's book that one of my students shared with me. Um, that. Has some, and there's a little bit that's inaccurate, so I'm not sharing the title, but the idea is great, which is um, a book about this woman's moon time. And her mother and her grandmother are in the book. I can't remember if her father's in the book. We should, I should go and look about that. And talk to her about how to care for herself, how to make herself feel better if she's crampy, how to change a pad or a tampon. Um, even goes into um, if she needs a bath, if she's feeling crampy, that there are herbs that she can put in the bath that might make her feel better. Um, she calls her grandmother to talk with her grandmother about this. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Imagine if that 
was something that we read with our kids. Just like we read about, like, so-and-so wants to grow up and be a firefighter. This person wants to do this. This person fell and needed some surgery. This person gets her period. And it's just, it, it would be, I think, so normalizing to do that. That said, I'm a midwife and I talk about everything, and my daughter has simply said to me, you are just too comfortable with everything to not talk I actually grew up with a book like that. That's the um, American girl. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah, yeah, I had that. I grew up with it. My mom bought it for me, and she's like, here, this would be interesting, but going through puberty and everything. And mm -hmm. it talks about tampons and pads and how to insert them and how to use them and how to you know, make yourself feel better and things like that. And um, after I was done using it, we would pass it down to like a family friend or uh, my cousin so that you know they can know too. So I think it's really important that you have that per that, that information starting out now. Is your father involved at all in the educational process? Um, not really, but like my dad is a physician, so he like kind of knows what's going on. <laughs> so like, I mean, I was pretty open with him, like asking about. So how does this work? Like, you know, and then he'd go out and get his little charts and stuff. <laughs> so, like, I mean, if I had like, I normally would talk to him about my mom with my mom, but it's like pretty open. When I was littler, I didn't want to talk to my dad about it. When I was probably 16 or 17, then my dad and I were able to, talk. I think I had moved through that horrible middle school, early adolescence, like everybody was looking at me thing, and then had gone to a much more self-confident place, and then I was finally able to talk to him. Uh, I don't know if this is something to like bring up, but also in the media, you don't see it as much talked about. Um, I remember like the first time that I, like anything about periods came up, it was like a show and like, again, it was that thing, like that panic, he was a single dad and like he didn't know what to do and he like, there was a scene of him just running to the store and like just grabbing the first thing and paying and just running to his daughter and that was that, or like to his friend's daughter or something like that, but like that was the first time that I've seen something like that and if you look at ads and whatnot, they're not, I mean, that blue liquid is just, it's ridiculous yes. Yes, now at this point. So, uh, it's, so you don't see it in media as much talked about mm -hmm. or normalized in that sense. Because as I feel like especially, my brother is 13, so I feel like that generation also, like that's all they know, the internet. And that's how everything is run now. So it's not, it's not as visible. People are still like very hush about it, even though there is so much outlets to share it with. So there was an interview during the Olympics this summer um, with a Chinese swimmer. Yep. Someone asked her, and she just yeah. very matter of factly said, "Yeah, I think I'm tired. I got my period." It was like it was. It was not only shocking in American um, social media; it was shocking in the Chinese social media yes. as well. It was. How is she swimming? That, that actually is one of the questions because tampon use in Asia is very, very rare. It's not something they, like, I, I, I knew they existed when I was in China, um, but it was not something that it was like best selling. 
and one of my friends who moved back to Taiwan, and one of the things she emailed me about was like, it's kind of, my mom was kind of embarrassed that she has to drive me all over the, the city to get tampons, because she hates using pads. And I was like, I can see that. I really can see that. Um, so so that, that is a question. How do you swim when you have your period? And to up to normal people, they were like, why the shock? So she did so. Yeah, but it was this amazing. Yes. I think that's the really I think it was her fourth rightness. Exactly. But why is everyone, why is it even an issue? Right. Why is it an issue? It's like every woman has it every month, you know, from puberty until um, they're older. Why is it such a, there's a lot of women out there. It's not like, it's not like something uncommon. It's happening a lot. So why is it something that uh, is. I also feel it has to do a lot with the double standard. Men get a pat in the back, you know, with a lot of things, and I feel like there's a double center with periods. You know, you have to hide that with sex. If you know, if a guy goes out and just has sex, he gets a high five. A girl, she's shamed for it a lot of the time. You know, a lot of girls going into college, they get pepper spray, you know, to make sure to keep bad people away from them. Where boys get condoms, so it's that. It's, it is. Everybody has a condom in their wallet where girls are told to carry a pepper spray and to be careful to not do anything that would possibly make them impure. And the period falls under that category. Then somehow you're impure in some way, but yet everybody has it, and it's that's how it works the female body, and people are just not comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting idea. It's just the conceptualization of the female body as normal and usual and not other. I have an ongoing joke in our um, teaching lab. We have a mannequin that's a, a chest to learn how to listen to heart and lung sounds. And it's a man. And all I could think was, why would you use a male reference? when the thing that's hard to learn is to listen to the right middle lobe where you have to displace a breast and more women seek medical care than men. So why is this model male? And the guy from the company was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> So it's just, it's an interesting question. Because the female body is sexualized. And also, if it had breasts, the, the uh, model suddenly, woo, you know, and it's like, like, this is not real. Or <laughs> like, um, we're not trying to have this discussion, but this is a woman's body. These are like breasts. Like, there have to be some sort of disclaimer before we even went into like how to determine the heartbeat or um, yeah. yeah. And so imagine if bodies were just. Normal. I think we view women's bodies as somehow other, different, diseased. I think that's part of why I became a midwife, is that pregnancy is viewed as like a medical disease that results in a procedure that is done to women. That procedure is called delivery. What if we change that completely and say pregnancy is just a developmental state, just like puberty? It's something that happens to a lot of women, and then you give birth. It's sort of normal, like breathing. It's what happens at the end of pregnancy. And it's not a procedure. It's a physiologic process. That's a really different way of thinking 
about women's bodies. So what if we take that way of thinking about women's bodies and put that into just, there are different kinds of bodies in the world and they're normal. How do you see that happening? I mean, I, I, I 100% agree. I'm, I'm curious what sort of initiatives you think would be useful. I think that, I think your point about the media is tremendously important as I'm a communications person, so I mean, I'm, I'm obviously biased. But I mean, I, and I think that something even more interesting to me, it's not even just, of course, what you sort of expected from sort of like normalized, dominant, I mean, like again, the trope of like the guy being terrified about having to like even go down like the tampon aisle is so old, but still repeated. But I think, and so, but even more so, I think there are, for example, like a lot of contemporary female comedians who are very frank about sex, but when it comes to talking about menstruation, that's still so, so even people that are pushing boundaries on some of those normalized areas, this sort of gets reinscribed. So like, I, again, I'm 100% on board with that goal. How do you, I mean, the third of the group, how do you sort of see movement towards that happening? And I would love to talk about like the branding and sort of like the reappropriation of some of this at some point, but I also yeah. want to keep I think reappropriation is actually exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, um, I think that, I mean, if you look at where we are now versus where we were 100 years ago, it's very different. But if you also go back like to the Elizabethan time, people were probably pretty straightforward about this. And so I think it's cultural mores. I think there's a, uh, and I think different cultures have different ideas about this and different ideas about cleanliness and purity. I don't remember there's a purity, but I think that there's not that. And I think that if we are able to change that conversation, then I think that I think it's to all tied as as we start to accept diversity in so many different ways. I think that this is very much tied to that discussion. Gender, gendered speech is right up there with racism and classism and all of those other power dynamics, and it affects different people. And so, when as as that kind of stuff progresses, I think that. It, can be reimagined. I think this we're pretty close to the end, but mm -hmm. you sent out the Megan Kelly thing. I think, what, I think we should talk about that sure. as well. How not only is it used for impurity and mm -hmm. so forth, but it's also used as a reason to label women as irrational. Irrational, weak, inconsistent, all of those, all of those things. One of the columns I read. Some, I don't remember exactly who said it, but it suggested that Hillary is um, is a viable female candidate because she has gone through menopause, therefore she does not have that fluctuation of blue swings, which when I read it, I wanted to punch whoever <laughs> in the face. But, but it, it, it is that, um, it, I think the, the bigger issue is that we do not recognize women's health as a complete, you know, package. As in, we have physiological functions that result in imbalance in hormone, and that may manifest in different ways that 
depending on the um, different uh, uh, the, the person. And we view that as a defect, defect rather than a physiological change. Until we, as a society, could recognize women's health as a important social foundation in, in the sense that we function half of society, I think there's never going to be a, a real change to view women as equal as men. So I also think there's a like there are many things that are cyclical. We have circadian rhythms. The fact that people need sleep, although in this in this culture it is often seen as a weakness. Um, <laughs> but like everybody has has times where they need to sleep. People have times where they're more energetic and less energetic. They have times in the day when they can focus more and, and focus less. And I, they're seasonal. Like, I, mean, I, I think that the whole idea of cyclicalness um, is somehow um, made pathological for women when it's not so pathological in other ways. And I think being able to see that cyclicalness as normal is um, it's really interesting. I mean, it's just I even think about that when I think about menopause. People talk about the whole menopause transition is going to be horrible. The overwhelming majority of women have no symptoms when they go through menopause. <laughs> you never know that from our media, and the overwhelming majority of women may have some changes because of their period. But they function just fine. They go to work, they go to school, they do all sorts of stuff, they manage budgets, they do everything all month long, all year long. And so I think there's got to be a way of viewing that cyclical changes and fluctuations as part of a larger fluctuating whole, just like we do circadian rhythms or anything else that's cyclical. I think we're going to have to have a less bloody talk. We really need to. We can talk about the global impact. Because we have a global impact, what we can do to make this happen, and the effect of media and technology. Because I'd be very curious to hear like, how like, people's thoughts about like, oh, these sort of technological man and like, all the apps that are now sort of also about yeah. like, self regulation and tracking yeah. and so networking. So like, the technological aspect is yeah. also. And I think we should continue the, this talk, even. I mean, the, the, the title itself is catching less bloody talk. But it's not just about periods, it's about women it, as a whole. Like, a lot of our needs and our, um, are being neglected. And I think that the, the, one of the other things I read when I did the less bloody talk part one was there is no systematic study of women's health, the impact of women's health at all. There was like, they, they understood, acknowledged that, that there is a, you know, it's important or whatnot. There's not that many study that's devoted into menstruation or like specifically. It just seems to be pushed away as in its bodily function that happens, even though it's an important one. Without it, we would not have the reproductive you know, process at all. So it's that it kind of adds on to that burden that we were talking about before, that perceived burden, 
that women have to endure, especially in the workplace as well, I think, that they use this. Employers will use, like, oh, well, you know, women are going to have that time of the month, every month, and they're going to have the mood swings and stuff. Well, what about the men? I mean, I know a lot of men who have mood swings every day. (laughs) 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 So, um, I know in my American politics class in high school, uh, this conversation kind of, like, came about, uh, you know, women and being, you know, that inequality that exists, a lot of women go into the workforce without their engagement rate because if they see that they're not engaged, employers will hire them because that means if you're not engaged, that means you're not getting married soon and that means you're not having kids soon. So that puts them in like, okay, I'll hire you because I know you are going to spend some time here, but or sometimes it's totally opposite. They're like, I will not hire you because what if you do get pregnant and then you're not here for six months. I was being told specifically once, don't get pregnant, I need you. Yeah. yeah. And I don't understand why that should be held against women either in the workplace, which. Well, I think we have a workplace that's not, that that does not accommodate that mm-hmm. and therefore it is a really big, yeah. huge, burden, but it shouldn't be seen as a women's burden. It should be seen as a burden on our whole productivity. And that's the problem, is it's still seen as like other, as opposed to our. When the saying is, it takes a village to take, to raise a child, and if the entire village doesn't raise a child, then you know, everything just falls apart. Because if the mother is not able to be there, or if the father is not able to be present in this child's life, then that child would very easily fall apart, and then that's, you know, could lead to the rest of us having to, you know, pay up in taxes and supporting that kid, or however it can be. What was a big discussion during the Affordable Care Act debate was, why should we include maternity care? One of the congressmen actually said, I'm never going to take maternity care. Why should this be a universally covered benefit? that that's a conversation that's a, coming from a very different place, and I think that that it's important to begin to discuss. Like, okay, so how does this become? How do we start to see this as not a dichotomy, but as a shared responsibility for productivity for our culture? It, it's really interesting when I first when my cousin who lived in who lives in Germany when she gave birth to her son, I went to visit her, and uh, her husband was telling me, very excitedly, he says, she's going to take three months, you know, uh, or six months until, like, for her, for her paid leave, and then it will be my turn. And then he was so excited that he was like, I get to spend time with my son, I get to influence him with which soccer team that he's going to play. <laughs> 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 and Sweden, they have a great, like, their leave there is like, I think it's like a year and a half yeah. or something like that per parent or total. It's ridiculous, but because they understand the fact that it, exactly, it takes a village to raise a child. So they each stay home and it's it's pain. Yeah, and yeah. he was so upset and I've never heard of that before. I was like, wow. And she, my cousin's, yeah, I guess six months where I could focus on my rebuilding my career after my maternity leave. And I thought that was a brilliant idea. And yet in here, we can't even get, what? Three months? Three months, six weeks, two weeks, three weeks. 
I have had, I have seen women go back to work two weeks after this. Because somebody has to pay those bills. Because they and had no pay leave, and that was the full sign of the time she could afford to take off. And, and they save up like vacation days and everything. Yeah. Um, and then I have a cousin who, you know, now she's a stay-at-home mom because financially they, she has two daughters, so she has to be at home because her husband does bring in a bigger income than she did. But it was a surprise. Now this question, I kind of like. I thought it was like a law that like women and men like in like in the U.S. they had a certain amount of like leave with pay. If you have, if you're employee, there is it's called the Family and Medical Leave Act, and if your company has more than 50 employees, they're not allowed to legally fire you from your job. They are you. You can take up to 12 weeks unpaid leave. But if you work at a company with fewer than 50 employees, you're not covered. So one of the women I'm thinking of worked at like a, a small mom and pop hoagie shop. They didn't have 50 employees. And she worked part time. And she had no paid time off. So there was just a bill in Philadelphia looking for accrued sick time. That you must be able to at least accrue sick time for your work. And there, there, I've, I've, I, has, I know somebody who worked actually um, was just started uh, a job and did not accrue anything. And she was given that's before any of this pay leave could kick in because she just started like less than a year or something like that and then she was back to work. It was HR and I, um, it was just a little bit Which I see that as completely related to the stuff that we talked to at the beginning for those girls who are unable to afford period supplies and then miss school every single month because they don't have enough, which is also related to the fact that we have mothers who can't afford diapers in this country, okay, who are rationing changing their children because they don't have enough diapers. So it's a it's a really it's a very real issue that has an unequal impact on us So, um, so there are real costs to, to having a period. And that I hope that each of you will take both some concrete information home to share with other people about ways to save some money um, and to care for yourself creatively, whether it's the, uh, what was it, the surface printed pads or uh, a diva cup. <laughs> and, um, and I also hope that we will meet again to discuss some additional implications because we didn't even get to the global implications in the business. Keep the conversation going. It's one of the best It's the best ways to well, engage the dialogue and make have people be aware of this issue that is bigger than any one of us.